This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome everyone. You've landed here in TGIF DCT, the decentralized club here on Clubhouse. For those of you joining us live, some may be joining us on your favorite podcast platform, listening to Decentralized, whether on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you may listen, wherever that may be, make sure you are following or subscribing or whatever that option is, so that if additional content is added in between Fridays at 12 noon Eastern time, you can be sure to get that notification and jump right in. Remember, if you are listening via podcast, we do gather live every Friday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. And the joy of joining us live is being able to jump in on the conversation like I'm looking forward to many in the room with us today. We'll follow our usual format, spending the first half an hour with our guests discussing today's topic. And then we'll open things up and look forward to hearing your questions, ideas, and perspectives on today's topic. Today, I am delighted to welcome back our friend, Dr. Dirk Arts, CEO and co-founder of Castor. Uh, Dirk is here to share some perspectives on a very topical area over the uh, last couple of years, but I feel like it's peaking now. Maybe it's rising up the uh, the Gardner hype cycle, maybe it's already hit that peak of inflated expectations. We'll talk about that. AI and clinical trials. Welcome, Dirk. For folks that haven't had the pleasure, could you come off mute, introduce yourself for folks that haven't met you yet? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Greg. Very happy to uh, to be here. Um, so Dirk Arts, I'm Dutch originally. I studied medicine in Amsterdam and did a PhD there too. My PhD was about decision support systems and neural networks and leveraging real-world data for better decisions. So um, I started Castro out of med school and um, continued doing that as, as its uh, CEO. And so today Castro is a uh, software-as-a-service clinical trial platform that helps facilitate decentralized clinical trials. Um, so the, we've been spending a lot of time on our artificial intelligence capabilities to make clinical trials more efficient and more patient-friendly while reducing side burden. So I think that's why I'm here today. Indeed, that is exactly why you're here today. And and I really liked your LinkedIn post where you said you were going to help us navigate some of what I'll call the hype to get real and practical about how these things are applied. So that's why I'm so happy you're here today. Likewise. There's so many um, leans around this, right? Because as you mentioned, you're using AI to make presumably your organization more efficient, but also potentially helping sites, sponsors, or other stakeholders as well, leveraging AI. And so it really speaks to this wide range of use cases, which use cases are actually accessible and near-term and available for us, which are more aspirational and maybe more long-term, and how do we actually realize these and actually manifest them and actually reap the benefit of all this enthusiasm, potential, maybe hype. Um, so Dirk, when you're thinking about this space, where are those use cases that you feel can bring impact for us in the near term? Yeah, honestly, they're, they're um, quite widespread and abundant, I would say. Um, so uh, I think almost everyone would be able to use 
you know, some form of a large language model to help with their day-to-day their day-to-day work. And if I look at Caster, we've been able to find a lot of internal use cases um, where we are now accelerating work uh, or increasing quality through. And you know, we're going to say AI all the time today, right? But AI has been around for a long time, although it's a struggle to define learning and, and classification and pattern recognition often. People don't really want to call that AI, but it's sometimes sort of labeled together. So I think for clarity's sake, when we say AI, we're basically meaning a machine doing a uh, task in a human-like fashion or with some level of uh, human-like intelligence, um, which is not necessarily classifying uh, data or labeling data, for example, but really trying to um, do what a human would do otherwise manually. Um, And so what we have used, quote-unquote, AI for at Castro, for example, is generation of test cases you know pretty basic internal things that just take up a lot of time a lot of manual effort to write test cases for for example a new study protocol uh, that's being built in caster we have our qa team of course doing testing against that well actually you can generate uh, that using ai and then actually have it execute that as well um you know, that's that's a very simple example um if you continue on this track of generative ai in kind of a writing setting um what we see a lot of courses now uh, excitement around medical writing. And so can we write clinical trial protocols? Can we write sections of clinical trial protocols? Can we turn uh, a protocol into um, you know, the regulatory documents that are always required? Actually, these regulatory documents that are submitted to the FDA and EMA uh, contain a lot of highly predictable uh, elements and um, actually very good task for a, a large language model, quote-unquote AI, uh, to get into and to, to contribute to. Um, so the entire clinical trial process, um, there, there, are, there are options. And it really starts just with drug discovery. Right? So we're using different versions of uh, large language models, you know, just sort of generative pre-trained um, models, you know, the G, G, what, short, GPT short. Um, you know, those types of models are now being used in drug discovery. So all the way from coming up with the first hypothesis and potential compound to be studied through then turning, you know, turning it into an actual study by writing the protocol and writing those necessary submission documentation to then actually go. It's interesting that you bring up drug discovery. It feels like, you know, there's um, a lot of commingling that sometimes investors and uh, journalists do around the types of tools and deal making that happens with AI and drug discovery. It feels like AI for drug discovery um, deals are really significant, right? They're getting royalties on molecules that come out of those discovery engagements. Sometimes it feels like AI tools for development are a lot more transactional and a lot more, can we improve a specific process as compared perhaps with what it feels like some of those discovery deals are feeling like. Um, Is that just the nature of drug development versus discovery or Dirk, are we not being as aspirational as our early research peers? I think um, I, have, I have the same observation. I think these very large deals, they sound amazing on paper. Um, I think, you know, they're, they're usually tied to a ton of milestones and um, you know, these, these big farmers, of course, they've, they've learned their lessons with these types of deals and in terms of structuring them in a way that um, they only actually work out if if things work out, if you will. Um, and I think it's an area where there was already a lot of comfort, right? So I think which models were popular that AI was being used in drug discovery, but it was, you know, difficult and slow and expensive. And I think the whole ultimately chat GPT hype just kind of got everyone to a point where like, oh, we shouldn't be like, we can't miss out on this. And I think there's often an assumption that, you know, the drug discovery with AI is not going to be easier and faster, which I don't think will always be the case. But I think it's really a matter of nobody wants to kind of miss out on the potential new way of, of AI-discovered drugs, although I think... The, the other question that keeps coming up on my mind, Dirk, and I think you hit on a little of this when you were talking about like generative AI use cases, um, I, I think when we're, we see, uh, certainly scope is coming up, and there'll be a lot of companies at Scope talking about regulatory document creation and authoring with generative AI. It makes a lot of sense, right? It kind of feels like a very natural um, entry place for Gen AI, or is it, right? I mean, there's a lot of different data that's needed to make that work and work well with Gen AI. And then is it something that companies will try to develop in-house and 
build on their own on the sponsor side, or are they better off experimenting and, and buying? I'm wondering if you have a, a sense of around that particular use case, the, the challenges maybe around the data that may be needed to train really well, if folks are comfortable with some of the more public utilities that are out there or should be shying away, and if some companies may lean better for this to be an in-house exercise. Um, I think you're right there that um, the, I, I think that area is getting a little bit overhyped and it's easy to get a impressive proof of concept out there um, that you can use to impress people who don't understand how this technology works. So I think there's definitely an element of that. Um, it is very logical to, um, to use a tool that can generate text and can write for you in that context. So I do think it's a, a viable use case, um, but I don't think it's, uh, something you would never necessarily have to outsource. I think a relatively small team of quote unquote data scientists or whatever we want to call them these days would be able to have a hard time differentiating and um, and really setting setting themselves apart. And I think quite quickly sponsors will figure out that actually you know they have teams that write protocols already. Um, maybe we can just um, increase their output and make them more effective with with some of our internally developed tools. So um, I, I do think that uh, it, it's yeah, it, it's a segment that's going to shift where, where sponsors will have an opportunity to take a lot of that capability uh, in-house as it's, um, you know, the, the easy parts are very straightforward part, and, and a large language model isn't going to magically solve that, right? It's not, it's not going to do all the science for you. That's not what large language models do. So you still have to do the science internally and then all the text around it, that's not really that difficult to do. Okay, so let's say it's not difficult to do and a company could do some early work in that space. Is it difficult to maintain and sustain that companies should do early experimenting in-house and be prepared to work with a partner as you scale and maintain it? Or is it actually pretty efficient to maintain and sustain as well? Because I think when pharma builds versus buys, it always feels good in the beginning, but then you actually have to maintain it. And that tends to be a space that tech providers seem to be more capable. Yeah, and that's why I think you should definitely not um, start to, as a sponsor, try to develop your own uh, element, right? Because suddenly now you're faced with all these regulations. Um, you're faced with a lot of challenges around, is the human going to be in the loop? Uh, you know, what goes into the audit trail, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how does this run? Does it scale? How does it operate at scale? If I want to run it with 10 studies versus 100? Um, you know, so this is where I think there's a, there's a difference. So generating text in a scientific team that is already used to, there's no risk there, right? It's very risk-free. Look, if the if the AI breaks down for, for, for generating your protocol, like who cares, right? Well, you saw again an hour from now. Worst case, you have a few days delay, but there's really little risk. So it's, it's a very different environment. But if as a sponsor, you're going to try to bring AI into a production clinical trial, now suddenly the stakes are way higher and the volume is way higher and, and the load is going to be way higher. So I think that's really a big differentiator. Like we have a ton of internal tools that we're using uh, at Castor. I'm also going to invite um, a friend or two up to the stage with us. Uh, a few folks that I know have also been working around some use cases here. So a few folks out there may be getting uh, an invitation to speak. If you're comfortable and this is an okay time to do it, feel free to come on up and join in the conversation. Um, because, you know, some of the things that I'm still very interested in here are around these use cases that may feel a little more near-term and accessible versus ones that may feel like hype. And what are some of those realities around adoption and the path that we should take from today to actually being able to realize some of these? Um, one person that I, I grabbed up here is uh, Alette, Aletta Brinth, um, because she and I just did a fun roundtable on this topic the other day. So I'm wondering, Aletta, if you could come off mute and introduce yourself and maybe share some of the uh, experience and observations you had from that session. Hi, Craig. Thanks very much for uh, the invitation to join. Is my audio okay? Yeah, so far so good. Hopefully we okay. won't uh, see Clubhouse start to jinx you the way we've been getting today. I promise I won't start talking about my thesis then. Perfect. <laughs> so yeah, it was a great roundtable um, and a pleasure to host it together with you um, at Health Excel. So maybe I could start just by introducing myself briefly. So 
Uh, my name is Aleta. I'm um, a digital innovation director in Novartis, working in the area of clinical trials. Um, and at this roundtable, it was uh, the benefit. I, what I really love about them is that the groups are very small, so you get backgrounds across the industry and lots of different perspectives. And we were focusing mainly on the use cases and moving into this adoption piece. I think some of the reflections I have were um, around the near-term use cases being maybe a little bit more back-end as we were talking, you know, around do automating document generation, as Dirk, you were referring to. Um, this is a huge uh, volume in the clinical trials industry and so have a huge impact in the near term. And really, I think that's an important piece for demonstrating impact to convince the um, organization on the adoption journey. I think um, there's been a lot of talk about AI at JPM and even at the World Economic Forum and our CEO was also talking about improving regulatory engagement with submissions. Uh, so that's another area I think we're hearing a lot of interest in, um, in applying AI. And then I think I would have loved to continue our discussion on the adoption challenges too. We touched on the, um, the build by partner strategy uh, and I, I think a lot of a lot of um, people at the table were convinced around the importance of the ecosystem and working together um, to to yes you can address certain use cases with your in-house capabilities but around the maintenance and staying up to date with technology developing on the outside I think it's important to constantly um, partner with um, those that excel on the outside and and um, improve your portfolio that way. But I'll stop there and maybe um, maybe there are some reflections you'd like to add to that, Craig. These are great perspectives, and I think you know one of one of the questions then that I think will be an interesting one. Not that we have to answer right this second, but I'm going to put on my list to make sure we're coming back to over our second half hour is. Um, what are some of the strategies that folks are trying in order to identify and try things with different partners out there? We can't, how much, um, how much truth can one just get from looking at a slide deck or having a meeting with a, a company? How does one experiment and, and learn in this space and find new partners in this space? Jane? I do want to talk about that for sure. And I, if, if it's okay, we can let people stew on that and then maybe it's a really good way to engage the whole audience. But Dirk, now that we have you back, I, I would, sorry, I'd like it if you could explain to me a little bit in more detail and the whole audience, how you take that study team who is gonna do the testing with you through the process of how you're gonna use your internal data sets and set up a simulation and then use your learning models to automate. How do you help them understand how this process is going to help build in quality, rigor and reliability to their trial environment? Yeah, that's, um, that's a big question. Um, am I coming through now? Yeah, yeah, we hear okay, you fine now, Dirk. The uh, oh yeah, the web app has a very light gray circle when I'm speaking. Okay, um, so I think the key is what I've been trying to do, what we have been trying to do at Cast, is keeping it very close to existing workflows. Right. So specifically, when you're talking about study teams and the more the operational side of uh, of the business, you know, there could be a lot of excitement at the leadership level. You know, every boardroom is talking about how AI is going to improve margins, et cetera, et cetera. At the operational level, the cleanups teams, um, you know, they're often already overburdened. And they have a lot of tasks on their plate, so they're not necessarily waiting for some some kind of black box to be introduced. And so what we've been trying to do is really stick close to existing workflows and show, look, your workflow doesn't change that much uh, or almost nothing, but you're plugging in this capability that is going to produce the same outputs, but now you're going to review them as opposed to generating those outputs yourself. And uh, by reviewing them, you still have control. You're still in the loop. Um, it's still you doing the work. Uh, but we are going to make your job more fun and easier. Um, and I think that that's really the narrative we try to do uh, as opposed to saying, oh, okay, so we're going to take your existing SOP and we're going to take it apart and change it like and put it upside down. No, 
take the existing SOP, SOP, keep it intact, and try to accelerate um, whatever happens in that process. And so that's worked pretty well uh, because otherwise you lose people very early on, um, and they may classify it as you know, yeah, it's a gizmo, but it will never work in our reality. Um, so that that's kind of the, the high level approach that we've taken. So you're making it very real for them and letting them experience the process as they're learning it. Is is that a fair way to say that? Exactly. So really trying to understand what is the, is this how you do things right now? Really sort of confirming and understanding first what the existing workflow is and where the pain points are, and then saying, okay, great. So let's let's keep that in mind, and now let's take a look at. And then obviously, I, I prefer live demos, as you know, over. Um, over slide decks, like let's take a look at how this could work, right, with this added capability, um, and then really also continuing to ask some questions of, do you think this would fit in the workflow? How would you use this? You know, what's, what are the limitations? Um, because I've I've actually now encountered multiple situations where if I'm being too bullish, and if I'm doing too much of the talking, which is often a risk with with me when I get excited, um, you, you you just lose them, right? So it's really I think important to keep listening and keep reflecting on, hey, is this actually something that would work in the real world? Because I think there's a big disconnect now. There's the group who's excited about AI and the leadership, you know, everyone sees all the benefits, and then there's the people doing most of the work who just don't see how it's gonna help them. And and um, that that's what we need to bridge. And that's also what I did at Castor. A lot of lunch and learns, a lot of practical examples, lots of proof of concepts, a lot of time to play around, to get familiar and to see, hey, how does this work in my world? So I think that, um that type of strategy can be very meaningful to move people uh, to make the abstract seem more accessible um, and to try to drive some early momentum it could also leave us trapped in the world of incrementalism that um, we just keep kind of tinkering at the edges and automating the existing process do you do you feel that that type of a strategy is a way to bring people forward and start to show some quick wins, but then do we still in parallel have to pursue the more ambitious? I mean, there's only one one answer to the question, uh, right, Greg? So um, it's gonna be resounding, yes, we still need to pursue that. And I will say what I found, um, people need to understand what is possible, right? It's very difficult to see the opportunities if you haven't actually experienced sort of this new generation of technology. So I, I like after a lot of investments in, inside CASA to help people see what could be done, which is a lot of practical examples and demos and stuff. People could start to think for themselves how to improve things. And this is where you get the most exciting ideas, right? Because people are very deep in this world, in their processes, et cetera. And suddenly they recognize maybe there's a different way of doing it. Maybe we can, Maybe we can leverage these capabilities in a totally different way. Um, but I don't think it can be top down. I think we need to foster an environment where uh, everyone understands to an extent how this can be applied and then come up with their own solutions. And then I think that's where you get the truly brilliant innovation when you know inside the ops teams, we have people thinking, oh my God, we could just do this totally different. Um, and, and I think that that's an essence and what you ultimately get is you have some practical things that, that improve existing workflows and suddenly a totally new workflow emerges uh, because of those insights. That, that's how I think things will be likely. And yeah, sometimes also just the bold thinkers that are venture back that are saying, hey, I'm going to throw a large language model at drug discovery and see how far it gets. That's also still required. Um, but I think what society, what, what our industry needs right now is more efficient, clinical trials that uh, you know, get the right treatment to the right patient faster, where the cost for the trial is lower, the burden for the patient is lower, the burden for the sites is lower. I think the whole ecosystem needs to be improved, right? It needs, it needs support from technology as opposed to technology working against it. I think we need that more than more drugs, more pressure on the system, more trials, right? So that, that's why I think it's so important to start at that level because if, if we don't solve those problems, like we can discover 10 times more drugs, but there's no capacity to run them, those trials. We are just at the uh, halfway point for our time together and it's usually a place where we uh, just drop a welcome for folks that are here with us live that maybe joined uh, just in the last few minutes. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. Uh, we do gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 live, 12 to 1 Eastern time, covering a range of topics related to decentralizing research and making it more accessible for all. Uh, we cover topics with guests that come from you, the community, and this audience. So 
If there's a topic you'd love to see us cover in the weeks and months ahead, just drop a message to Jane Miles, to myself, whether here on LinkedIn, uh, whether on LinkedIn, here on Clubhouse, or sending an email to secretariat at dtra.org. For those of you that are joining us on a replay, whether on Clubhouse or on your favorite podcast platform, welcome as well. Be sure to follow and subscribe there. And remember, you can join us here live every Friday where you can have the, the fun opportunity to do what we're going to do now and invite folks from the audience to come up on stage and share their questions, their experiences, their perspectives. This week's topic, artificial intelligence and clinical trial, improving efficiency. We've got our guest, uh, Dirk Arts, CEO from Castor, joining Jane and myself here today. If you'd like to come on stage and you're new here on Clubhouse, you should have a little hand-raising icon in the lower right of your screen in the app. Give it a hit and we'll be delighted to hear from you. Dirk, as um, from, from where we left off in that conversation, we were talking about uh, adoption and helping organizations to adopt and make this accessible. One stakeholder that I think is screaming for improvements in efficiency, but is also overwhelmed by technology today would be our, our research sites. Um, and the way technology has been deployed is frequently viewed as extremely burdensome to the sites. How can we use AI to provide help and relief, especially where more and more sites are, resource, are in a resource crunch without it being viewed as yet another well-intended tech being dropped off on the backs of overworked site staff. Yeah, that's an area where I'm extremely excited. And so we, we keep talking at Castor about practical AI. And when I mean, when I say practical, I mean AI that influences the day-to-day -day operations of the majority of the people that are running these clinical trials. So that site staff uh, is a big group of that. Um, and so, you know, if I said, look, we don't have to do manual data entry anymore, or we we don't have to spend, you know, we're spending 20% of the time informing patients about clinical trials. Um, and we can actually more effectively screen and onboard and consent these patients. Um, I think those are great places to start. And so we, we are really looking at where is the burden right now in terms of hours and workload and also, you know, what's, what's the least fun part of the work? Because of course, turnover in terms of people quitting is also a big issue. Um, so how can we make their jobs more fun, less repetitive, and, and really create their outputs without um, um, without completely uh, taking the human out of the loop. And so uh, I have seen the ability for these modern sort of generation of, of, of AI to address a lot of these types of tasks that I just mentioned. Um, and so on the CRA side, they could also include sort of data, sort of data verification. Um, but I think, again, if you reduce the time it takes to onboard and enroll a patient and you reduce the time it takes to do to capture to capture data from whatever source, um, you're you're already making a ton of progress in in reducing site burden. Would you would you agree? I, I think it comes back. You're right in a lot of ways to that same incremental kind of conversation. These things don't have to be game changing. And how can you take the tools and things people are using in existing processes and make it easier? But Turk, I've noticed now twice you've used the F word on this show. You've said fun. Um, I think you couldn't possibly have thought I meant something else by that. And so <laughs> I'm kind of curious, you know, um, what, what, what's your, wh why are you using that word? And in what way do you think that we can make work not only easier, but fun? Well, the human brain is just not wired for um, sort of doing hours of repetitive work. Um, some, some brains are better than others. Mine is really bad at it, but um generally speaking it, it's not something that people are good at it requires a lot of concentration a lot of focus and mistakes are being made i mean the whole reason that source data verification exists in the first place is because humans aren't that good at doing the same task over and over again for an extended period of time um and that's you know repetitive work that is not necessarily um you know fulfilling it's just not fun right um what if you can use tools to do the majority of that work still be in control um, and actually um, see how uh, the machine can help you. Um, I think we can make a lot of these clinical trial jobs more fun, and with that, reduce turnover and, and you know increase, uh, let's say, employee retention, if you will, uh, which is going to benefit the system uh, tremendously. So I really think we can take the sting out of a lot of these day-to-day -day tasks that right now are 
the opposite of fun. And Craig, I'm just going to dive in here for a sec and say, I don't actually think that making patient matching enrollment onboarding and data collection would be incremental. I feel like that would be game changing. Any one of those things would be game changing for our industry, knowing that even with all the tech tools, the new ways to find patients, the sites are reporting that the resource burden to act on those new solutions is still overwhelming them. So yes, please do that, Dirk. Do it as much as we can. Absolutely. Aletta, I wonder if you have perspective on what you were hearing from Dirk. He was sharing some perspective on strategies to try to drive adoption, both among internal staff inside of a sponsor ClinOps team, study teams, as well as research sites. It feels like there's a lot of focus on um, making it inclusive, getting these tools into people's hands early, but conforming to the existing process and try to um, make these feel very accessible. I'm wondering in your work, uh, in, as you're using these tools and working to make change happen with them, are you taking a similar approach in your company? Or are you finding other strategies that have helped to bring people along around adoption? Yeah, this is a really uh, interesting conversation and discussion that um, on ongoing amongst a lot of different colleagues. I think it's important to make the tools available um, and at the same time, it's coming on strong, right? So <laughs> there's a lot of regulatory concerns and, and legal concerns around data access. So we need to be mindful of how we roll it out. So that's, but that's one part of the equation. I think the second piece is, um, in a large organization um, like ours, it's important to have um, a, a central strategy for rollout, um, a central strategy for uh, capability building and change management. But at the same time, that last mile, um, last mile adoption, I think, comes from finding the champions, the the cleanups super users who get it into their hands and, and are able to, um, as you alluded to, Dirk, kind of demonstrate those use cases where the tool really adds value to their workflow and, and helps them think differently. And I think then once you see, see your colleagues using it in, in a way that um, is relatable to you, then I think it, it makes it easier in, in your area to, um, to begin, begin adopting it, even though maybe you're a little bit um, apprehensive at first. So I think the last mile delivery is about, about finding the champions. And Dirk, I am curious, how do sites respond to these sorts of fun new technology offerings? Or have you got there yet in terms of showing them examples and working with them on how to, how to optimize their own workflows? Um, I think skeptical right i mean it's it, it is new technology obviously and new technology doesn't have a strong reputation uh, right now um so that takes work uh, obviously the idea sounds great but it's it's like well i have to see it to believe it um and so you know there's a lot more there's a lot more work there um and again you know the, the problem with with these applications is um you know doable in in the lab basically uh, the technology itself is not always rocket science some of it is uh, but then actually getting into into production into a real trial and also then handling all the regulatory aspects of it and fitting it into the sop and the existing workflows it's a big uh, a big hurdle so i think it's early days right i think there's people will say hey if you solve the problem for me awesome and you know tell me when it tell me when it's working tell me when it's there well actually you want to say hey we need to work together to figure out how this fits into your workflow and how to best implement this and so uh, I would say it's it's early days, um, but what we have been doing internally, I think we'll also be doing externally, right? So really showing how it works, showing that it works, giving people access to those tools, and then we can build some momentum. And once you have the first success stories from actual site users, then of course you start leveraging those to, to show others like, hey, this is real, and this is actually making things better, as opposed to being another technology gizmo that makes life worse. Well, and I to noticed. Aletta's point, Dee, I'm just curious now, have you had any situations where sites or even study teams have pushed back saying, oh, interesting, and I don't think X will agree, regulator or IRB or someone else? 
And do you have tips on how to navigate that? Yeah, I mean, uh, specifically anything you do on the patient side, of course, um, the IRB comment is the most common one. I didn't actually need anyone to tell me that. I kind of told myself, um, but then others said it too. And um, yeah, what's the strategy? Um, we have a responsibility to prove that this technology can be predictable and can be reliable and will perform better than a human being. You know, any any human being can get upset with the patient. Um, obviously, we don't want the AI to get upset, but I think that's a fair reference standard, right? How would how would the human equivalent uh, handle this situation? And uh, we, as an industry, need to start building up, you know, evidence to um, to support that this is indeed safe. So I, I think the, the burden of proof is is with us, and and we take that very seriously at Castro, and I hope others are too. You know, I hope no one's going to rush into the market with an unproven solution. I think if you're going to launch something like this, you better be able to prove that it is predictable and reliable, and and it behaves. Um, so there, there's work there. I see good support in the audience regarding some of the conversation so far around allowing experimentation among the users, among your ClinOps organizations or among your sites, um, which I know that theme came up both with you, Dirk, as well as Alete. I see Michelle Shogren in the audience in the chat here on Clubhouse from uh, Innovate and What You Do. Uh, sort of reaffirming that as well, which I know probably builds up on a lot of her experience driving that type of implementation inside of pharma as well. You know, there's always a lot of um, angst and concern around these AI enabling tools. There's this concern around trust. There's a concern around trusting in the data from which they've been derived. There's concern around whether these tools are ultimately just here to replace me. Um, and so, Dirk, what, what are kind of your fears or concerns around AI as we're pursuing these use cases? And how do we deploy the right risk mitigation and countermeasures to make sure those are mitigated? Yeah, my fears around AI are all in the uh, in this sort of misinformation camp, which I don't think is going to be a huge issue in, in clinical trials initially. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm much more concerned when it comes to uh, to politics and, and, and science and other aspects. I mean, that's going to be very difficult to manage. Um, I think in clinical trials... Are you speaking trials, about like deep fakes, misinformation, video, voice, and so on? Yeah, I mean, the example that someone, you know, and also just in fraud, like the example that someone gave of being able to adopt someone's so let, let you know. Let's imagine we have a a 21 year old who who's in college and has a pretty visible social media presence. There's plenty of data there to to train, um, you know, both in an AI avatar plus a, a large language models to to interact like that person and then get on a video call with their parents or grandparents and you know ask for money and you know any variation of that. Like with public figures, is even easier. I mean, I even did it as a joke for for the CNS intro movie. So. A lot of concerns there. I think on the clinical trial side, it's mostly, um, uh, yeah, I, th I think it's such a regulated industry that I think it's automatically going to to work. And like, I think the challenge is getting it actually to be used and to be adopted. Um, and for me, it's, it's just to keep the human in the loop, right? When in doubt, keep the human in the loop. Don't try to go for 100% right away. Go for 30%. Like just make, make one process that is being done millions of times every minute around the world. Make that 30% better. And you've had the biggest impact on clinical trials um, that any, any, anyone's had in, in the past 50 years. Um, so I, I would really focus on uh, incremental benefits that keep the human in the loop and make it very easy to audit what has happened. Um, and, and that's, I think, the only way we can, we can make progress. Um, my my biggest fear is that everyone's going to rush into the market with unproven solutions and that we see uh, to an extent um, some of the same behavior we saw around dct you know that it just gets a bad bad rep for 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 the wrong reasons i would say um that we don't have to recover from so that's actually my biggest fear in um in life science is that you know 18 months from now everyone's like you know screw ai it didn't work um and um you know it was just a fad like you know we need to be disciplined and we need to think how how does this fit in the regulatory context and how do we keep the human in the loop and in control? So I've got a question and and I don't know that we'll answer it today. In fact, this is a shameless plug, but we are starting a circle on AI and clinical trials through DTRA for our members. 
And one of the topics I know we want to talk about is there are a number of guidelines or um, I'm going to call them guardrails documents that are coming out from different organizations. I think ACRO released one recently. And I'm curious, Dirk, especially as someone who's an expert, what do you think about those? Are they helpful? Are they hindering? Do we need more of them? Do we need something specific for DCTs? Um, well, I think everyone's starting, starting to work on their sort of AI code of conduct. What do we do? What do we don't do? So I think that's good. I think just for an organization to be deliberate about like what are the what are the guardrails and and where do we um, where do we stop? Uh, I think is is great. So for example, like one obvious one would be we never create an AI that pretends to be a human, right? Like it, you can easily see how it would be attractive to not do that because we all know that. I mean, maybe we don't all know that, but there's been a ton of research that actually humans uh, like interacting with an AI more than with a human until they know it's an AI. So you could say, well, then just not tell let, just let not tell the human that it's an AI that you're talking to. Well, I don't think, really think that's an ethical thing to do. So that could be one of the ground rules, right? Like we always make sure you know when you're interacting with AI and most are adopting that. And if you have that framework in place, then even if you have you know a thousand developers working on it, as long as they follow that code of conduct, theoretically, we kind of would stay within those guardrails. So yes, I do think it's useful. I do think it has to be very practical and not too philosophical. Um, and it can help us uh, keep things on track and to also evaluate others you know so it wouldn't be crazy for me at some point that the dtra would put forward some version of a general you know, code of conduct around ai uh, that others could look at and implement um and to see if if, if everyone's kind of sticking to the same ethical boundaries uh, if you will but as with all things people are going to you know not follow those things and are going to cross those boundaries and um yeah i think that's a a reality we're going to have to accept, but I expect that the, the reliable vendors and partners and players will all ultimately play by those rules, and we need to start defining those. Well, that's a great segue. In fact, that is a topic we're going to take up in the circle. Do we need it? What would we put in it? How would we get to a DTRA? I'm going to call it code of conduct. So, great. Um, in um, fact, I just dropped the link for those of you here live in Clubhouse. That link is at the top of your screen. If you're on the podcast, we'll add that to the show notes so folks can click through and learn more about circles at DTRA and fill out a form if you want to jump into the AI circle. Keep in mind, those circles are for anyone who's um, a colleague at a member organization. So you'll see a list of 50, 60, 70 logos out there. Your company is listed, fill out the form. You're, you, you're welcome to join, it's, it's that easy. Also individual members, of course, are always able to join us there as well. You know, Dirk, you know, it, it is interesting to think about you know, misinformation. It's interesting to think about um, the potential for, for fraud you mentioned around deep fakes. Um, you know, I certainly, I'm like a lot of folks, I'm experimenting with note-taking apps using AI. Um, you know, it's, it's like, I feel like 99.9% .9 accurate, but I feel like people will find in there the 0.1%, you know, thing it got wrong and get very worried about that. Maybe because they are thinking about it less as a job aid, less as a step that still requires human intervention. But then I also think about the enthusiasm around synthetic data, around digital twins, around you know being able to construct data sets using AI. And it feels like that's an area that might get really hard for fraud detection. It almost feels similar to what we see with deepfakes that we're gonna need an army of AI machinery just to make sure that what we're seeing is real. Yeah, and like you know, honestly, I'm not saying that Worldcoin is a solution. I'm not sure if you know that that is, but Sam Altman has like a so Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, has like a side project called called Worldcoin, and part of that is giving everyone a uh, biometrically generated, unique uh, like cryptographic signature, um, which can be used to say, look, this was created by a human. Now, I don't think that we should all give our biometrics to one single central entity. Um, I would prefer sort of an open source uh, solution that's decentralized, but I I haven't been able to reason myself through a future where that doesn't 
happen in some form or shape, right? Where you just have to sign something with a, a, a with, with a signature that proves that you're human. Now, obviously, then that probably will also get reverse engineered, et cetera, et cetera. But some some type of um, global identity that proves that you're human, that this is actually coming from a human. I, 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 I'm not sure what, what else we could do. You know, you, yeah, you can have the arms race of, you know, deep fakes versus the anti deep fake AIs. And, but there's so many examples, you know, also just in emails and text. And we already have the AI avatar influencers on Instagram who have like a million followers. Um, it's something's got to give. And I, I think it's going faster than we, when we want uh, in that regard. Um, so at some point, I think our, our proof of being human is going to just be part of the equation. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, you took me to a very dystopian place there. <laughs> so yeah, no, but I mean, I, I, there is there is reason to be uh, there is reason to be concerned about some of it. Obviously, you've always seen me on the excited angle, and like, let's use a let's use AI to make humanity better, to increase the human health span, to increase health equity, right? And hopefully, also have some positive climate impact. Let, uh, let's absolutely do that. It's out there already. At the same time, uh, we we can't just put our hand in the sand for the other opportunities that that's are there and um, um, I, I really hope that there's a couple of really smart people working on those things. I, I know there are, I mean, some Elfman is one example, um, but this is also a, a part of, of, of this new uh, society that we're entering into that needs to be addressed. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here so far, talking about use cases, talking about some pathways for adoption and some of the pitfalls, risks, and concerns folks may have. Um, Jane, I've, I'm, I'm just clicking back into the chat to make sure we didn't miss anything over there. One question that I see came from um, Moanish in the audience. Dirk had to do with um, entry barriers for pharma companies to get started using Gen AI tools. And this probably builds on some of our conversation from a bit earlier around adoption. Would some companies have an advantage with access to data, um, uh, you know, that's so essential for learning and training with these models? Are some pharma companies going to uh, have a leg up by being able to have access to certain data for training versus others? Will it create separation in this field going forward? I mean, it's I've heard this conversation a lot of emphasis put on. Um, on fine tuning, right? But that's what we're talking about. Where we take an existing uh, large language model in this case, and we fine tune it based on the data set or train it, if you will. Well, it's not really training it. The training is what what OpenAI does for us. You can actually retrain an open source large language model, but that is complex. Fine tuning is easier. Um, I haven't seen instances where right now like fine tuning with whatever data set gives you a huge head start based on just how good some of these models are out of the gate. Um, so there's a lot of open source models that have been trained with, uh, with publicly available biomedical data sets, uh, for example, and they perform really well. Um, so, you know, can you ultimately eke out, like get, get ahead of the competition by having even more data and even more specialized use cases? Yes, but the, the, I really don't think that's where the playing field is at right now. I think anyone just implementing vanilla GPT-4 in a secure and sensible way is is making enormous strides. Um, and it, it's really not coming down yet to have do you have 5 billion data points to find you in the model versus you know 1 billion. Maybe at some point that will make like the incremental difference that it's like 10% better. Um, I don't think that should be a huge concern uh, right now. I think everyone can make their business more effective um, and more impactful by leveraging these technologies and um, having a lot of data isn't yet a prerequisite uh, it will ultimately decide you know the final race to the finish line but i think we're a few years away from that this has been a great conversation dirk how do you stay current on this field are there readings resources um, other sources of content that you rely on or are you just constantly surveilling, having conversations, and being willing to experiment? Yeah, I mean, it helps if you're super curious about things, right? So I've, it's, I'm, I'm sort of intrins intrinsically motivated to, uh, to learn more. Um, but uh, if I'm being honest, the only use case that I've found for Twitter slash X, which I otherwise don't like as a platform because there's so much noise and crap and other bad things there, but 
I will say there's a lot of interesting smart people that are experimenting there. So I do use X to just kind of scroll through and pick up on, on new things people have done. And then you know, there's a couple of newspapers that do a pretty good job of summarizing the innovation. So yeah, it's you know the short answer is uh, social media. Um, I just scroll through and anything that grabs my interest, I dive in and consume it. And then there's experimentation. So I see something new and maybe I grab a beer on a Friday night and uh, and do an experiment and, and not go to to the pub and, and see what I can do, you know? Well, I look forward to hearing on Monday what experiments you pursue later today. Um, that's also a very good reason for folks to be sure they give Dirk a follow on social to stay current on what else you're seeing, touching, and finding interesting. Uh, folks who are, are interested, certainly connect through those DTRA circles. Use that as an opportunity to keep learning and sharing around use cases, adoption, risk mitigation, and a host of other considerations, as well as we start to think, as Jane mentioned, around guidelines and um, uh, not to constrain us, but to make sure we're, we're doing this right and that we're not uh, and that we're set up properly to avoid some of those pitfalls we were discussing earlier. Uh, Jane, any last words on your mind for this week? Uh, just saying thanks again, Dirk, especially for navigating some of the complexity here that is not typical. So thanks for hanging in and sharing your wisdom. And just to reinforce about the circles, please, everyone can feel welcome there. It is genuinely a mixture of experts and new learners like myself, and everybody seems to take away good things from the time they spend there. Great point. That is not an exclusive space just for the experts. Great shout out. Dirk Arts, thank you once again for joining. We look forward to having you back and hearing the updates on the experiments and the implementations you're bringing to life. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks all.